As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father, um, our Lord Jesus is the word become flesh. He dwelt among us. He revealed your glory. And now we have a word written that reveals your glory. It is your word to us. It's perfect in every way. And we can trust it completely. And so now please enable us to come to it as we ought. That when this passage is read, we're hearing, we're listening um, to your word and not, not to the word of a man, but yours. So enable us to hear you, please. And then as we think through it in our feeble ways, Holy Spirit, please help us that we might um, see and behold our King. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Isaiah in chapter 40. <clears throat> I want to read the whole chapter, though we'll only think through the first two verses. So this may occupy us, I suppose, for a while. Isaiah chapter 40, please, verse 1. <clears throat> comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all, all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty lays like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the breath, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young who has measured the water, waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountain in scales and the hills in a balance? Who's measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and accounted as the dust on the scales, behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. 
To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are there planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And together we say, what? The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is the first Sunday of Advent. In one sense, it doesn't really mean anything because it's an invention of human beings. We've come up with this way to count time. We've come up to this way to to follow through a year. We say this is the first day, really the first Sunday of the church year. It begins now. But again, that's our own invention. Some churches are tied to it. Some churches ignore it. Some churches condemn it. Some churches use it. And that's what we do. We use this time as a way to center our thoughts, to think together on this rhythm, this, this, this yearly time of coming for this season of Advent to think about the advents, really, of, of Jesus, um, his first coming and his second. It's, it's traditional, really, uh, during this Advent season to take up um, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, other things can be taken up. We've taken up a variety of things over the years. Uh, sometimes we just continue preaching through. I continue preaching through where, wherever I am in the scripture. We just happened, as you know, to finish something. So now I can pick something up. And I must confess to you. I guess I don't have to. But I'm going to. It always catches your attention when I say I'm going to confess something. Um, but I must confess, I've always wanted to preach through Isaiah. I've preached to the other major prophets. We've gone through Jeremiah, we've gone through Ezekiel, gone through even Daniel. But, but uh, ah, every time I take up Isaiah and I read it through, I'm just simply overwhelmed. <laughs> and I must say, I'm so intimidated <laughs> to begin it that I, I don't and haven't yet. Maybe I will someday, uh, but I haven't yet. Now, we've preached through, I've preached through various portions of Isaiah. You know, we've, we've taken up the, the chapter 7 of the 
the virgin giving birth. We've taken up um, chapter 9, that I read as our call to worship, and that always begins and ends our Advent season. I'll use it as the benediction on Christmas Eve. But, um, and we've gone through chapter 11 about the stump of Jesse, and now the root will come, this one who will come. And we've taken up the glorious uh, chapters uh, in the end, chapter 65 and so forth, of the new heavens and the new earth. Because, you know, it's fascinating that the prophets, when they see uh, what's to come, they see the whole thing. They, they, don't, they don't distinguish necessarily the first advent of Jesus and the second of the Messiah coming to fulfill. all. They, they kind of see the, the, the whole picture, the whole thing is interwoven, if you will, in their, in their prophetic their prophetic word. That's why Jesus uh, spent a little time, at least with his disciples and thus with us too, talking about um, the time in between. Many of his parables are are like that. The master comes and the master leaves. And here's what you are to do in between that time. And that was a little bit shocking. You remember right before the ascension of Jesus, Acts chapter 1, the disciples are curious with Jesus and they ask him the question, is it now you're going to restore the kingdom and all of that? And it's like Jesus ignores them and he says... Here's what you're to do. You're to wait till power comes upon you and you're to be my witnesses throughout the whole world. And so, so we, we get the sense that, that even then there was some wonder because of the prophetic word about the Messiah, what, how this would all work out. And, and we live in between. We live in between the first advent and the second advent. But we know, of course, as we think this through, that Jesus is indeed our hope and our only hope. And thus, at the end of our service, we'll end it with that, with that little expression that Christ has come. Christ is coming again. And then the last word, hallelujah, because it's our hope. It's our joy. If, if this isn't true, we have nothing. Uh, but he has come. So we want to come to grips with that. What it means that he has come and he's coming again. And we want to come to grips with that so that we can live in the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus. So I want, if God will help me, to take up during this Advent time, this chapter 40. It's long. I, I don't know if we'll make it all the way through. That's one of the intimidating factors of me preaching through the whole book. I, I don't know how long I'm going to live. Uh, I don't know if I'll make it. And so, so we'll just have to see what even comes of Isaiah 40 uh, for, uh, for us. But here's where we are, at least in, in the prophetic word of Isaiah. Uh, oftentimes, if you read outlines or you're looking through how we're going to sort of outline the book of Isaiah, the, the two big halves, if you will, that it falls in chapters 1 through 39 and then 40 through 66. Uh, the themes of 1 through 39, if, if you read it over, you, you're left with this sense of warning, this sense of even judgment coming. And all the nations, most particularly upon Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, because Isaiah sort of overlapped, spanned them, was able to speak into both situations. And and, and so you get this sense of warning and and judgment. And and the warning is, uh, God's always saying, trust me. Don't trust your own wisdom, your own logic. Don't trust your own strength. Don't, don't trust the other nations with whom you can make alliances. You see, very often what happened in Israel, both in the northern and even in the southern kingdom, is that rather than trusting God, rather than trusting God that he would protect them and provide for them, they, they thought, well, if we can make an alliance with this nation or make an alliance with that nation, then we'll be stronger against the real enemies. And every time, every time Israel makes an alliance, they get in trouble. 
they get taken advantage of and, 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 and they begin to follow the wisdom of the other nation rather than following the wisdom of God. And they begin depending upon the strength of the other nation instead of de- depending on the strength of God. And, and always it leads to their demise. And so God says, don't do that. And, and he says, you're mine. And if you continue to do that, then judgment, really. Discipline, warnings, discipline will come upon you. But most particularly, what we find in the tail end of the 30s, the chapters that lead up to chapter 40, uh, deal with Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. And, and he was a good king, it seemed, and, and followed the Lord in, in many, many ways, and even received the blessing of God. He became sick, and God said, well, I'll give you 15 more years in response to Hezekiah's prayers and, and all of that. And he delivered him. But it appeared that in the very end that Hezekiah brought in a group of people from another nation, the Babylonians. Chapter 39, verse 1. And at that time, uh, Merodach uh, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sends envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oils, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, that doesn't sound so bad unless you realize that the Babylonians were their enemies. And and, and, and he brought them in and he showed them everything. It would be like bringing in a terrorist and saying, here, here, let me show you all of our secrets and, and everything that we have and, and everything that's valuable that you could possibly take from us. It would make it valuable for you to take these things from us. So then verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and he said to him, what do these men say and from where do they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I didn't show them. In verse 5, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom your father, uh, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Oh my. He said, I don't really care what happens after me. It's going to be good for me. That's all I care. But we know what Isaiah was speaking. About He was speaking about this Babylonian exile where the Babylonians would come in and destroy Jerusalem and take initially the best of the best and then the next group and exile them with the hope of destroying the kingdom. That's where we find ourselves. And you know, I don't know if you're reading through, um, honestly, if you're reading through, if I'm reading through Isaiah by this point, I'm exhausted. <laughs> There's been judgment after judgment after judgment, and I'm exhausted. And if I didn't know what chapter 40 was about, I'd be wondering what's next in all of this. My expectation would be, God is saying, I'm going to destroy you, but you've completely walked away from me. I'm going to destroy you, and that will be that. But then we begin in Isaiah chapter 40, and this begins a whole section. This begins this rather like the prologue to the rest of this prophetic word. And, and he says, he says, comfort, comfort my people. Now, notice the repetition. 
You remember um, Isaiah chapter 6, where um, uh, Isaiah sees the Lord and the angels round about. And, and you remember what they're saying. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And, and, and they say it three times, not because they're just being redundant, but because that's the way in the Hebrew language a superlative is expressed. To say holy, holy, holy is to say this is the holiest of all. So don't miss it. How can we, we can't just look at God and say we are holy. That doesn't do it, you see. And we could say you're holy, holy, but, but that doesn't do it. And so the best we can say is holy, 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 right? You, you, you're not done until you say all of that. And so, so when God says, here's the word I want you to speak from me to the people, comfort, comfort. He's saying, I, I, want, I want you to emphasize this so that they don't miss it because they're likely to. Because they're going to be hearing this when they're in exile. And they're, they're not going to think that I care about them. They're going to hear that when, when, when everything's been taken from them. And, and, and so you need to make sure that, that you emphasize it, that you say it, and you say it, and you say it. This has to be, they've got to get this, or they'll never survive, you see. So comfort, comfort. And when he uses that word, you know, we use the word comfort, and I, I think of, you know, a, a comforter. You know, you're cold, and you bring this big thing on you, and you feel secure and comfortable and warm. That isn't what he's talking about. He's saying, I want to strengthen my people. Strengthen them, encourage them. They're going to be discouraged. So encourage them. The word that you're going to bring to them now, after all of this judgment, the word that I want you to bring to them now is is to strengthen them, to encourage them, you see, to fortify them. That's what it means to comfort. When the Holy Spirit is called our comforter, he isn't just our buddy that's going to make us feel warm and happy inside. He's the one who comes to strengthen us. He's the one who comes to fortify us. He's the one that comes to encourage us, you see. And so that's what that's what the, the prophet is saying here. I want you to speak this word to them and, and speak to this word of, of comfort um, uh, uh, to them. Um, and that's the amazing thing here. One commentator um, puts it like this. He says, The most wonderful thing about these verses is not the beauty of their expression, though that in itself would have been enough, nor the attractiveness of what they reveal, although again, that would suffice. But the place where these words come, doom has been pronounced on Hezekiah, and with it the death knell seems to have been sounded for all Isaiah's glittering predictions of a coming king. Because remember, in the midst of all of these judgments prior to them, well, what God had promised is that someone's going to come and sit on the throne of David and rule and reign. And when he does, there'll be victory and there'll be prosperity and there'll be expansion and, and all will be well, you see. And then now he's saying, I'm oh, sorry. Everything's going to be taken from you. And so that moment of desperation, that moment of fear, that moment of anxiety, that moment of confusion, that moment of despair, <laughs> comes this, this word, this repetitive word. Um, and you wonder, at least I do, what's the big turnaround <laughs> from chapter 39 to chapter 40? I mean, what's happened? Just a, just a verse before He's saying that you're going to be exiled. You're going to lose everything. And now he says, oh, by the way, let me strengthen you and comfort you. I wonder what's happened between, between one 
verse and and another. And and the question that comes to my mind first is, well, what did Israel do? What did they, what did they do to to make God say? Here's some strength. Here's encouragement to you. And that's the fascinating and the humbling thing. They did absolutely positively nothing. It's all from God. Everything that's going to come and everything that's going to come to comfort them is from him and for him alone. They didn't do uh, anything at all. He did it simply because he loved them. We read about this love of God for his people in Deuteronomy in chapter 7 and verse 6. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it wasn't because you were more in number than the other people. that The Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest. In other words, he said, there wasn't anything about you that better than everybody else, anybody else. Wasn't that at all? In fact, he'll go on to say in chapter nine that it wasn't because because of uh, of, of of their righteousness or uprightness of their heart at all. So he said, it wasn't that you were more in number than other people that the Lord set His love on you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you. And is keeping in the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of favor of the king of Egypt. You see, they were wondering, why have you come and gotten us? He said, well, because I love you. And they said, well, well, why? Well, because I love you. See, it isn't about them, it's about him. (laughs) It's about the love that is in God. Not that we're lovable, but that he loves you. And so he says, I want you to comfort my people. What's happened between chapter 39 and chapter 40? We're nothing really for the people, but God is now expressing to them uh, his love. I I read after our confession that verse that we all know. We know it so well, sometimes we don't even think about it. For God so loved the world. It's an astounding statement. That he gave his one and only son. See, it's astounding. Why did he do it? Well, because, you see, he, he loved. You see, it's rather natural for us to think that we must really do something, that they must have really done something to attract the attention of God in such a way that he wouldn't just judge them, he wouldn't just exile them. What did they really do? You see, that's the sense of, of religions of the world other than Christianity. We must do something in order for God to come to us in grace, in order for him to come to us in mercy, in order to come to us at all. You see, we must do something for, for him to be attracted to us. But the very point of it, he said, no, 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 no. You're not attractive. You've sinned against me. You've rebelled against me. I have to exile you because of that. But But, but here is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it because... I loved you. You know that wonderful expression in Ephesians in chapter 2. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Oh. Oh. See. Now what's that expression in Romans 5? You've heard me say it. I don't think I'm exaggerating if I would say it a thousand times. I've been here a long time. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What compelled him? Not our sin. What compelled him? His own being, who he is. That he loves us, you see. It's very short-sighted of us, isn't it? To think that, that maybe we can change, or maybe we can do something to attract his love. Short-sighted, I would say blind from a standpoint of history. I mean, things are different now, especially in first world countries, than perhaps ever before. Maybe, maybe there's great improvements on how we can live materially and physically and so forth and so on. Uh, uh, no doubt about that. We have running water. It's hot and cold and we flush toilets and we, we, we have air conditioning and heat and light and lights and at the flick of a whatever. But all of that, and we get around in cars that now drive themselves. But have we really changed? Have human beings really changed? Are we any less selfish? Are we any less self-centered? Are we any less prideful? Do we hate less? Do we love more? Really? What is there that really attracts us, you see, uh, to God? It's even natural, I think, for us to think about God as judge. I mean, of course God is judge. People understand that, at least in a certain sense. In fact, that's the primary way that people think about God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'll quote him again this morning. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in England in the mid-20th century, probably known as one of the most influential preachers of his day especially those that come from our Reformation tradition. Um, He put it like this. He says, we've all rather thought of God as somebody who's against us, some awful specter, some awful power, some terrible potentate who's opposed to men and women and is never happy in a sense until they're miserable and groveling at his feet. The ordinary person's idea of God is of someone who is ever delighting in punishing us who is altogether against us and wants to keep us down. Therefore, God and the whole religion, uh, the whole of religion has been regarded by men and women as entirely opposed to us. Right? People think that way about God. Trying to remember, I heard a sermon when I was on vacation by a dear friend of mine who was preaching in a church in Colorado. And I I should have thought about it before right now. But he used a comic from Calvin and Hobbes. And there's something to the extent they're talking about whether God exists or not. And the final word is, of course he exists, because I always feel as if there's somebody after me. <laughs> That's how people think. But, but the truth is, he is after us. To save and redeem, you see. That, that's... The message of the gospel. That he's after us. To save us and redeem us. Because after that long quote about Lloyd-Jones saying that, that the whole of religion has been regarded by men and women as entirely opposed to us. He concludes though the paragraph with this. He says, but that is a travesty of the truth. To believe that is to believe the very opposite of what is true. Now does God judge? Of course he does. 
But that isn't his delight. He says, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I don't. Now, this is complicated. God's complicated. He's not easy for us. But you see, the point of creation isn't so God could condemn. The point of creation is so he could be glorified. And how is he glorified? He's glorified through redemption. What's the glory of God? It's the cross. What do we see in the cross? Do we see judgment upon sin? Of course. But what we see in the judgment upon sin is it doesn't fall on us. It falls on Jesus. And that's his love so that he can redeem. That's his glory. Everybody would have thought, surely God judges. But who would think that there's a God who redeems? That a God who takes the likes of us? The ones that should be exiled. And he takes us and he saves us and he blesses us, you see, and he restores us when we've done absolutely positively nothing other than to deserve his judgment, you see. That's the point of it. We have an expression in our tradition, this reformed tradition. We have a little category called the covenant of redemption. And it's, it's been derived, if you will, from the scripture. You won't find that expression in the Bible. But, but the covenant of redemption refers to what we see as we read through the scripture, that there was a plan before the foundations of the world to save. And so the covenant of redemption is this agreement, this covenant made between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit where the Father plans to save. And as we've mentioned a few weeks ago, as we've worked through these I Am statements of Jesus, that, that the Father gave a people to the Son. And the Son agreed to come and redeem them. And the Spirit then agreed to come and give life to the ones the Son's redeemed. That's what we talk about in terms of the covenant of redemption. Now, why was that made? It was made for the glory of God. It wasn't their plan. They didn't sit around and say, Can we create a world so we can condemn people? So we can send them to hell? It wasn't the plan. It wasn't what motivated God. What motivates God, you see, what glorifies him is in this redemption. And we see it here. We see that they did nothing to deserve his comfort and the word of comfort. But yet he gives it. Why? Because he loves that's who you see. That's who you see he is. If I may continue with Lloyd-Jones. He said, according to the Bible, the first man and woman started in a right relationship to God, but in their un, um, unutterable folly, they turned against him and went astray and suffered all the misery that men and women are still suffering today. And the whole message of the Bible is just to tell us that far from saying to himself, Well, if they've chosen that way, let them carry on and reap the consequences. God has said the exact opposite. There is no message in this book, meaning the Bible, except that God, the very one whom people insulted and against whom they rebelled, is so concerned about them that he himself did the only thing that could be done to rescue and to redeem them. That is amazing. And by that I mean we stand amazed. We wouldn't so much stand amazed at his judgment. Of course, that's what we deserve. What we stand amazed at is his love and grace, you see. 
That's what we see here. That's the amazing thing. If you're just reading along, you go 39, 40 chapters, you know, here we go again. It isn't here we go again. All of a sudden, everything's changed. All of a sudden, the judgment. And now he says, I want you to speak this word of encouragement to them. I want you to encourage them uh, with this word, you see. Comfort, comfort. I don't want them to miss it. So verse 2. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Speak tenderly. That is to say, speak to her heart. Speak as a lover would speak to the one beloved, you see. Now that's fascinating, this word of comfort and this tender word. Very often, I don't know about you, but when I think of a prophet, I think of him like this. But no, it isn't. Oh, there are times when he's like that. But, but here, he says, I want your primary job, Isaiah, now. I want it to be to comfort them, to speak this word, and to speak tenderly, if you will, um, to speak tenderly to them. Now, notice the condition they're in when this word comes. He says, they're in warfare, in iniquity, in sin. Now, this expression, uh, warfare, is a difficult one, I've been told, by translators to translate. There's a couple of difficult words in this, in this passage. Um, but this is one of them, warfare. What does it really mean? Well, when, they're, when we're at war, life is difficult. Life is hard. Life is, there's a struggle. That's why if you have a new international virgin, version, it would have translated this expression, warfare, as hard service. Their hard service has ended, meaning... They're living in misery. It's a very difficult time that they're in. And why are they in this very difficult time? They're in this very difficult time because of their sin and iniquity. That's what happens. Sin brings misery. We know that. Sin brings misery in the context of our, of our lives. I mean, you know that. I don't even have to go through it much. You can just think about your own life and the lives of of others, what causes misery in your life? Uh, very often, it's something that you've said to someone, or something that they've said to you, and it's been said in such a way that's come out of selfishness, or pride, or envy, or jealousy. The sin within us, you see, or, or thoughts that we've had against, or behavior, something we've done against another person, you see, and that's misery brings misery in the context of our lives. Things that they've done to us, we've done to them. We, we see it. We see it in the world in which we live all over the place, right? We see the warfare, the danger that's in our own streets. We see it in shopping malls. We see it at concerts. We see it in schools. We see it in churches. We see warfare against nations, one against the other. We see the misery that sin brings to us. And even in the context of our own lives, it's this guilt that we feel. We may not want to acknowledge it, we may want to express, suppress it, but, but we know how this feels, this, this sin in the point of our, our lives, that now he's saying to us, the warfare is ended. David, the king, knew this misery, this struggle caused by sin. And Psalm 32 has David's thinking through and meditating on his own sin and how he's come finally to ask God to forgive him. And the sin with Bathsheba, he, he says in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Uh, those who go down to the... Whoops, I should just turn one page. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. 
See, when he didn't acknowledge his sin, when he lived in the midst of it, he lived in, in misery. That's why we were mentioning last Sunday that Jesus calls us to live in love with one another so that we won't be in misery, but we'll know his joy. He said, I'm telling you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. What's he telling them? He's telling them to love each other, to obey his commandments, to love each other. And, 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 and when we're not doing that, you see, we're living in, in real misery. But you see, the lie of Satan is that if we follow God, it'll be hard. I mean, even when he came to Eve, I don't know if you remember, but, but when he first came to Eve, he said, didn't God say you shouldn't eat of any of these trees? <laughs> now, she corrected him, sort of. But, that, but that's his M.O. His M.O. is God wants you to live in misery. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, we used to talk amongst ourselves. Should I believe in Jesus? Should I not believe in Jesus? And the great fear among eight-year-old boys was, if we believed in Jesus, he would send us to the worst place in the world to be missionaries, you know? And, and you know, some good adult should have come by and said, no, 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 God's not like that. Oh, by the way, he may send you, but you'll love it. You'll love it, you see. And Jesus had come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I'll increase your burden. <laughs> he didn't say that at all. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what did he mean by that? Well, to be yoked in that sense was to be a disciple of another, to learn from them. And Jesus said, if you learn and you follow me, then, 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 then your burdens will be lifted. Your warfare will be ended. That's the point of it, you see. And how will that be? Well, does that mean it's easy? Well, not in some sense, but easier for sure. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes a piece, is Christianity easier hard? He said, remember, the laziest child knows that school is the hardest. Why? Because he never studies until the end. And then it's just misery. But if you're conscientious, then school is easy. Well, if we follow Jesus, it's narrow, but it leads to life. It leads to life. Not to follow him leads to death, you see. So he says their warfare is ended. On what basis is their warfare ended? And he says, well, on the basis of your iniquity being pardoned. Well, on what basis is, is the iniquity pardoned? It says that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And I read that and my first sense is, wow, they're really going to get punished. <laughs> they're going to get punished double. And then they're going to get punished double. And so God will say, okay, you're punished enough, so it's over. Another one of those very difficult words to translate. Because he just says, first of all, receive double for all her sins. Could be double punishment. Could be double blessing. One good commentator by the name of E.J. Young, he taught it, forgive me for giving you all these citations this morning. And he taught at Westminster Seminary uh, in another generation. And is well-respected, wrote a three-volume um, commentary on the book of Isaiah 
that uh, everyone still uses to this day. Thus, I'm going to quote him, or at least tell you what he said about this word. He, he said, the, the most common understanding of receiving double, or this word double, means to be folded over. That's where it's used most often. Something is folded over. So you know that when you, you take a piece of paper and you double it, you fold it over. And if you fold it, I'm using, I'm actually using, uh, a, you know, a prop. I just want to make note of it as maybe a first. So just, just in case you're keeping score at home, once every 28 years, he actually has a visual aid. Uh, but uh, so if you fold it over, you see, one side covers the other. And you see, it's most likely that the Lord is saying that I'll cover over your sins. Your sins are this much. I'll cover over your sins. And you'll be pardoned for all of your iniquity. And thus, the warfare is ended. The struggle is gone. You're now accepted by God. Not because of anything you've done. Because of everything he's done. Not because you loved him but because he loved you and he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When this communion table is set up, I always think there's kind of an elephant in the room. You know, I haven't said anything about it yet. But it's sitting here. And I guess it really isn't an elephant in the room. It's a lamb in the room. And so we have to ask the question, how are our sins pardoned because of the coming of Christ? Well, Isaiah tells us in chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one according to his own way, but he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed. Is about to be glorified to show the love of God. That with his disciples, he took bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring pardon for our iniquity. We're declaring double for all our sins. We're declaring The warfare is ended. The struggle is gone. God says in Jesus, you're forgiven your sins. Trust in me. God says through Jesus, trust in me. I am your God. You are mine. Stop striving. Be still and know that he is God. And he has has done it, you see. 
He's done it. I mean, in, in Isaiah's day, they were looking forward to it. Oh, their little provisions along the way. They were restored after their exile and the temple got rebuilt and all of that. But yet they know this is it. And there's still something more. And, 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 and they could go back to Isaiah and yet there's still something more. And then Jesus has come. And he is our hope. The sins are pardoned. Iniquity taken care of. Stop striving. Trust. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. At this moment, on this day, at this time, that we would know that we're in the very presence of our Lord Jesus, who's with us. And even as we come to this table, that this bread is bread and this juice is juice and all of that, that still you would set these elements apart in such a way that we have a sense that we're in his presence and being in his presence, that we would have a deep and abiding sense of your love for us and a deep and abiding sense of your acceptance of us because you have atoned for our sins. Give us faith to believe. May your spirit be at work in us. May we walk according to your ways. And this I pray in Jesus' name.